0: yeah we're up mike let's go
1: all right thanks for joining us everybody for episode 123 of decentralized revolution a mises caucus podcast uh we have our guest coming on here in a bit uh dr bob murphy senior fellow with the mises institute author of uh choice and understanding money mechanics uh but with us as always is our co-host aaron harris and brandy what's going on hello
0: We're high energy tonight, Mike. <laughs> yeah, you guys are very high energy. I'm
1: feeling. You know what? I'm feeling good because my wife just got. Uh, she's got hired for a new job, um, and she's going to be the uh, the manager of a of a medical marijuana dispensary here in Pennsylvania. So with her getting that job and me doing the the, the Bitcoin job now, uh, our house is fueled by weed and Bitcoin, and yep. I feel like hey. that's that's pretty libertarian cool. Like that's... that
2: is. You're <laughs> living get... your principles.
0: You're definitely getting audited very soon.
1: Yeah, so I'm working with a, a tax uh, company to to you know nullify that. Yeah. <laughs> but yes. uh, before we bring our guests on, got to do the plugs, and uh, you know, obviously, takehumanaction.com. Sign up to our newsletter. Uh, get updates about what we're doing, what's going on in the party, uh, what our calls to action are. Uh, we are moving into candidate season. Our candidate director, Amy Lepore, is hard at work dealing with city council candidates, mayor candidates, school board candidates all over the country. Uh, got some really good things going on. Uh, you know, Tennessee and Colorado in particular are doing great, great work. Uh, got some big victories there, big victories in Maryland. And we want to expand on that. But uh, the other thing that's going on is Defend the Guard. Uh, so if you go to defendtheguard.us slash phone bank, they are asking for people to help them phone bank for Defend the Guard efforts around the country. If you're not familiar, Defend the Guard is a bill that would prevent the state government from sending the National Guard overseas without an explicit declaration of war from uh, the Congress. Uh, And this is the way it ought to be. People don't realize how often uh, National Guard is sent overseas all the time. And uh, the powers that be, the military industrial complex tries to fight this at every opportunity, but there has been some headway on this. There has been committee appointments, successful committee votes, uh, votes in the House. And this is an effort that really just started in the past like couple years. So it's it's really gaining ground fast. And we want to help you uh, there at the uh, ground level and, and getting it getting it through and getting the first uh, first effort done. So defendtheguard.us slash phone bank. doesn't matter where in the country you are. Uh, they will show you how if you are in Arkansas, you can help an effort in Arizona. It doesn't stop you. So Defendtheguard.us the slash phone bank and takehumanaction.com. All right. With that, I'm gonna bring up our guest. We got with us Dr. Bob Murphy of the Mises Institute. What's going on?
3: Hey guys, glad to be here. Thanks
1: for so coming.
0: Yeah, it's uh you're um you're my favorite libertarian, even like Scott Horton's 1A me and i've gotten to be friends with scott over the last few years and uh-huh. helped them edit some stuff but even without only meeting you briefly once you're you're still my favorite so i'm i'm very honored to to have you on and uh yeah you're bob is like the smartest guy of all the podcasts i listen to bob is definitely the most intelligent so
1: well i appreciate between that.
3: bob and joe exotic for sure <laughs> i know i was going to ask you aaron which other ones do you listen to just so i can understand
2: the, the,
0: um the it, well i guess uh I, I listened to jordan peterson's uh some um i listened to like you know all the sort of standard um libertarian ones i like the no agenda podcast too uh, was just pretty good um but uh yeah um and as far as like writing and every time i hear you speak it's like yeah he's you've got it down and you've been doing it for a long time you're about my age but you've accomplished much so much in the libertarian world so you you got at it pretty young right
3: yeah uh well thank you for all that and yeah i mean i was i started writing i guess like when did i go public with it i started writing for lou com when i was in grad school so that was like 1999 something like that
0: okay Right. And I, I really like how um, a lot of people know you kind of in the pop culture, um, you know, kind of for the, all the, the Krugman stuff. And, you know, that's why, um, you know, being someone who is a a good critic of like the prevailing wisdom of what what we hear, you know, what normal Americans hear in the media about the economy is kind of a nice niche for you. And that's kind of one thing that kind of the first question I wanted to ask is, and I, I sometimes when I talk to my wife, she's not very political and she's like, well, when I talk about the economy and I say what's going on and why, and she's like, well, if all the other economists are saying the opposite, like it sounds right, but how come other people, more people don't know this. If the Austrian approach is the correct one, why, um, why is it such a minority in, academia and in in the culture so maybe start off by giving us your take on that
3: why are we economic gnostics yeah so great question and i agree uh it, like i could appreciate that you know like i somebody who is hasn't isn't hit deep in the stuff or whatever just yeah on the surface it doesn't seem odd that okay you're telling me all these economists at harvard and mit and that are on the federal reserve and nobel prize winners they're all totally wrong and you Austrians have this unique knowledge that's been around since 1949. Give me a break. It does sound implausible. I guess what I could say besides just appealing to the actual economic arguments and say, look at what they're saying. That's, that's, you know, this guy Krugman says, if only we had a fake alien invasion, the economy would be fixed. I mean, just, you know, you don't, you don't need a PhD. You know, that's kind of nutty, but beyond that, I would just say in the past few years, we've seen like, look at what happened with like epidemiology and the things like, you know, I mean, everyone has seen just how crazy that, you know, follow the science was when it came to the covid stuff where it was clear you know there were a group that were saying certain things and other people try to be reasonable and just the the voices that dovetailed with more government power seemed to be the ones that were elevated so you see that dynamic here that that gee the, the the economists that get picked you know for these powerful positions and that make it to the top in academia are the ones who say the way to have a healthy economy is for the government to get more regulatory power and the printing press that, that wow what, what are the chances
0: Yeah. And so just a little bit, how did, um, before Keynes, what was the economics profession like? And then explain kind of what, what a revolution that was when his sort of approach became prominent, because it does kind of really fit right into, oh, the government wants to do these things. And, oh, here's this, uh, you know, esteemed economists with this new award-winning theory that, Oh, just so happens to endorse everything that we've been wanting to do and have been trying to gradually get in for the last 150 years. Now we have academia has finally come around. So is, is that, do I have that right that, that Keynes kind of justified kind of what was already kind of happening politically?
3: So, uh, yeah. I mean, so the way I would put it is, um, the economics profession tended to be what we would say more free market oriented back in the 1920s, let's say, than it is now. And then, as you all know, like in the 1930s, it was the worldwide Great Depression, which was, you know, the worst worldwide calamity and peacetime that the world had ever seen. And it just it wasn't ending. And so it seemed like traditional orthodox economics had failed. And if you want to do a follow up in a second, you know, I can explain to you why I don't think that was right. But that was the perception. And then, yes, Keynes comes along in 1936 was his big book. So he was known. It wasn't like nobody knew who he was until 1936. He had he was a, a well-known economist by that point. But, yeah, 1936 was his general theory. And even the title, like rhetorically, what he did was very clever. So he was mm-hmm. doing a play like sort of on general relativity, like in physics. Yep. So there, you know, the idea was, you know, Einstein wasn't saying, oh, everything Isaac Newton said is totally wrong throughout the window. Instead, he was saying, oh, Newton described a special case when, you know, objects aren't going near the speed of light and then newtonian mechanics kind of works but in general you know it's actually was called special relativity but the idea was you know einstein was giving the framework that was true in general and then newton was just a special case so Keynes was saying to the economics profession all of classical economics by which he meant more than just adam smith but like all you free market people Mm -hmm. he said it's not that you guys are totally wrong you were describing an economy that's at full employment And there, all of your truisms, like if the government spends more, then that means private business has to spend less and blah, blah, blah. That's all true in your world. That's special case of full employment. But I'm giving you a general theory that can handle everything. And that's what the world's stuck in right now. And the only way to get out of this right now is if all the governments have massive deficit spending. And so that was very appealing. And, And Keynes is a, I don't mind calling him a genius. I'm not saying he was a good economist in terms of his analysis and stuff, but he was a very intelligent guy. Like, you know, even Hayek would say like just in terms of being a well-rounded guy who could have a conversation at any dinner party and impress Mm -hmm. people, you know, Keynes was that guy he could put on a good show. And so, yes, that he almost wrote too, like, it was very mysterious. Like you'd read it and say, what does he mean by that? You know, is that (laughs) kind of a book? And so that, you know, did lend itself to a mystique and then, you know, the rest is history.
0: In general. And I'll let uh, someone else talk after this in a second, but in general that, um that rhetorical trick he did of like saying hey well in this special case um you know without full employment you know then all these other then things work differently is presumably what he was saying like is that even like a good it, it seems to me from being a Misesian that that doesn't uh, you know something is true and it works in all cases you know like if you raise the minimum wage all other things being equal employment's going to go down among those people like uh, is there any merit at all to the argument of oh in some special cases we should take an entirely different approach
3: i I mean in terms of you're saying in the abstract in terms of all scientific inquiry is it possible well yeah like in the case of physics you know so Mm -hmm. he was pointing to a real world case where with physics you know with newtonian mechanics versus the, the broader einsteinian vision uh with economics even there I mean, let me be as fair as possible. So not confuse your listeners and viewers. Obviously I am not a Keynesian. I think it's totally wrong through and through, but yeah, you could, you could imagine. So for example, there's a, um, in terms of like trade-offs. So yes, if you were originally at full employment and then the government subsidizes whatever the building of a sports stadium and then says, look at all the jobs we created and blah, blah, blah. Clearly you would just say, yeah, but that came at the expense, you know, those jobs would have been somewhere else. So you expanded, you know, the construction area and that one city where you built the stadium and then there were jobs destroyed elsewhere. And that has to be the true if you were at full employment before and after the government program. But if you started out at 20% unemployment and the government spends a bunch of money to build a stadium, then it's not as obvious that, oh, the, the jobs you're creating there necessarily came at the expense of something else, right? Because there it did look like, no, the private sector's broken. There's people sitting at home watching Oprah. Well, back then they would have been, you know, listening to Flash Gordon on the radio or something. And, you know, to get 100,000 people employed planting trees or something doesn't mean there's 100,000 fewer people making nylon stockings like those Mm -hmm. people were unemployed. So you could see, like, in principle, why somebody like Krugman or Keynes back in the day would have thought, you know, it's not a tautology. You guys, you know, stop just using your your reasoning from the case of full employment. (laughs) But even having said all that, try to be fair? And still, I would say, no, once you understand why there was 20 percent unemployment then it doesn't follow letting the government waste money on political programs is a good idea. Like solve the root problem of why there was unemployment. And it's not because the free market failed.
0: Yeah.
1: Go ahead, Mike. So what, what I wanted to, to talk to you about was, you know, we, as Austrians, we, we read the literature, you know, we get up on the, uh, uh, the, the general ideas, you know, the business cycle, praxeology, the fed inflation, money, all this stuff. Um, but, I'm actually and, and I listen to you a lot I listen to Tom a lot I listen to uh, Peter Schiff a lot um, and uh, you know I'm, I'm interested in in kind of like applied Austrian theory you know what I mean and and uh, you know what exactly should Austrians be looking at in the economy in order to make their analysis or or what are what are like what what would you say are the, maybe the three most important indicators in the economy that Austrians should be interested in because there's all this stuff, you know, there's the CPI, there's the, the yield curve, there's the Laffer curve, there's the, the monetary flow, M1, M2, M3, there's jobs reports, there's the, the stock indexes, yada, yada, yada. And it never ends. How do we, how do, how should Austrians look at this? um, uh, Dare I say ordinarily, (laughs) you know, like, Mm -hmm. like, like what, what are the most important of these that Austrians should look at and how does it kind of all come together? Okay. So let
3: me explain I don't know that I could give you three things that like in all circumstances are the top three things to look at. Cause maybe, you know, down the road, something else would come up, but for sure right now, the way I'm looking at it is um, the fed clearly had a very easy monetary policy after the '08 crisis. And then it started to tighten a little bit and then COVID came and it, you know, dropped interest rates down to zero again and massive expansion, of the balance sheet that made the rounds of QE look like nothing. And now that and they started tightening again, and so and, and I was guilty of this, too, during like the Obama years when the stock market's getting blown up or we would say it was getting blown up in a bubble. And, you know, we're, we're sort of like, hey, everyone, this is unsustainable. Get ready, get ready, get ready. And that was unwise for two reasons, because one, if it, you know, since the crash didn't happen right away, then it looks like we're just, you know, crying wolf all the time. But beyond that is that wasn't even consistent with the Austrian story. The normal Austrian theory is, you know, there's loose money that keeps interest rates artificially low. Then, when the banks and/or central bank tighten, that's when the bust happens. And so, it, there's nothing, there's no problem that Austrian economics had to explain in terms of how come a crash didn't happen? A, you know, a bad crashed in 2011, 2012, 2013 because interest rates were staying at zero and the Fed's balance sheet was either expanding or, or treading water, right? And so, now though, under any metric, they're clearly tightening. They brought you know, brought interest rates from zero to 5.25 percent in a pretty rapid amount of time, or, you know, short period of time. M2 is way down, I think the most in, in history, at least going back to World War II. We don't have relatively available data back you know, earlier, but clearly you know, charts of M2 are coming way down. The Fed's shrinking its balance sheet. So the Fed's definitely tightening. And then the big thing that I've been looking at, like you, one of the ones you mentioned, is the yield curve. And so the reason I like that one is that's not just something that's in the Austrian toolkit. This is a well-known phenomenon. So just real fast in case some of your uh, listeners don't know what I'm talking about. The yield curve is... Um, normally it's called upward sloping. So it's like saying if you're looking it up at a graph that um, along the X-axis is the, is the uh, maturities. Like so, you know, one month, two month, three month treasuries all the way up to 30 years. And then the Y-axis is the yield. So normally it's an upward sloping line, meaning if you lend your money to the government for longer, they give you a higher annual interest rate. But when the yield curve inverts, meaning when the short end is higher, so like the yield on three months T-bills is higher than on... 20 year treasuries, which is the case right now, and it has been the case for a while now, then since World War II, at least, every time that has happened for a sustained period within 18 to 24 months, there's been a recession. And also, every time there's been a recession, there's been a preceding yield curve inversion, right? So it, it has no false negatives or false positives. So it's a pretty good indicator. And economists argue, but why, why does it work? But it, it does seem to do that. And right now, that thing has been flashing red for a good nine months. And like I said, so that's not an Austrian thing. That's just a separate thing. I think it it fits well in the Austrian story. Like if the Austrian story is right about what causes the business cycle, then the yield curve inverting before recessions makes total sense. But that's not something like Mises or Hayek stressed, as far as I know. So that thing has been flat. So that's that's, to me. And then the, the last thing I'll say too in terms of like why I'm pessimistic right now is all the reasons the mainstream economists are pointing to for why we're gonna have a soft landing those were all true back in July of 2006 when the Fed stopped tightening at that point, and they stopped at 5.25% you know, to try to get the housing bubble under control. Unemployment kept falling for many months after that, so everything looked fine. And then all through 2007, there's all kinds of news. You know, We went and looked it up. Jonathan Newman did, and then now I'm stealing his idea. If you just go to Google and you know restrict the date search to 2007 and type in soft landing, you'll see – The Dallas Fed, as of September of 2007, said soft landing ahead. Like they were all talking about that, and if you remember, there was a little great recession that happened, financial crisis shortly thereafter. So that those are some of the things, um, you know, in terms of standard Austrian theory. When you have really loose money, and then they the Fed tightens, there's going to be a big bust, and so just a matter of like parsing that out. So again, big picture, I think the problem that some like guys like Peter Schiff and I did this too. we were warning about oh my god you know the feds blow up a big bubble we're all dead and they hadn't tightened yet and so you know even according to the the standard theory that's not when the crash is coming you got to wait till they tighten so what what is it about the tightening that causes it and
1: what what is that relationship between like what is the catalyst of the yield curve inverting that is uh a bad omen essentially is it is it essentially that the 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 yields uh, being higher in the short term is kind of their time preference going down. So they're like chasing money right now because, you know, they they're in a bad way or like, what is that relationship?
3: OK, sure. So let me just so real quickly, the standard Austrian story, forget the yield curve stuff, but just, you know, what what did Mises say back in you know Human Action published in 1949? I'm, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, is that uh, the banking system floods the market with with cheap credit, you know, credit that's not backed up by genuine saving that pushes interest rates down, but those are false signals. Like interest rates shouldn't be that low. It's it's an artificial signal. So that causes an unsustainable boom. Entrepreneurs with these low rates and like cheap money are investing in long-term projects because of the low interest rate, the project looks profitable, but households really aren't saving more, right? So the boom is built on quicksand. So the, the businesses are expanding, they're bidding workers away from each other. Wages are rising, everybody feels wealthy. People are you know going out to eat more, buying fancy cars and stuff. So if the times are good and so in that environment, so now I'm switching over the yield curve thing, what would the yield curve look like in that story? Well, the, the banking system's pumping in money that's gonna push down interest rates. But if you say, well, is it gonna push down short rates or long rates and just all, I think all schools of thought agree, the Fed to the extent it can control interest rates, it's more on the short end. If it pumps in money, it can push down short rates, but then that raises people's expectations about long run price inflation. So that might make long rates go up. So if you think about it, when would you have an upward sloping yield curve? It would be during a boom period in the Mises-Hayek framework. So that's why what the press and CNBC calls a normal yield curve is actually a boom in the Misesian world. Then things start getting out of hand. The banks get nervous. The central bank starts saying, oh, we better tighten. So they stop pumping in all this money that makes interest rates shoot up. But again, you ask, where w- would the whole yield curve just all shift up? No, short rates would shoot up more than long rates. Because in fact, by not pumping in money, people might forecast lower long-term inflation. So like long rates might even come down a little bit. Whereas there's, there's a scarcity in the money market right now. So the short rates shoot up. It's, and that's what, what happens too. It, it, empirically, if you look, when the yield curve inverts, it's not that the long rate comes down. It's that the short rate shoots above the long rate. And so that's totally consistent with the Austrian story. So to answer your question, it's the Fed was pumping in money that started, you know, entrepreneurs started a bunch of long-term projects. And then the Fed suddenly cuts them off and then rates shoot up to reflect the new scarcity. And then a bunch of business people are like, Ooh, money's tighter than we realized at this you know, high rate of interest. Now we can't yeah, continue. We got to start laying people off. And then it's a downward spiral.
0: So something to clarify there when you we're talking about interest rates. So the only interest rate that, and this may be the dumbest, uh, statement ever i'm i might have it totally wrong. i've heard a lot of dumb ones i doubt it's the dumbest <laughs> but they, he's they, on twitter yeah <laughs> the only thing that the federal reserve controls is that fed funds rate right and then all the other ones are presumably the market sets those based on everything else that's happening
3: okay yeah good question so you know i'm not being patronized. that really yeah. that is a good question okay so let me answer so prior to 2008, the fed did not literally set any of those rates. It, it, it did a thing at the discount. It was called the discount rate. So mm-hmm. if you went in literally, if you were a bank and literally borrowed money from the fed, then the fed could set the interest rate. Just like anybody who lends money can decide, you know, here's mm-hmm. the rate, take it or leave it. But back before 2008, even for the rate, the Fed, look, would you say the federal funds rate, which is for people who don't know is that's the overnight rate that banks charge each other to lend reserves. Right. So the money that the, the banks themselves have, like with their checking account with the Fed, they can lend those to each other and they charge an interest rate. And it's like a, you know an overnight loan. And that the interest rate annualized for those is what the Fed funds rate is or the federal funds rate is. And that's what the Fed has been targeting for a while. Like, you know, going back to a Greenspan's era, at least. OK, so before 2008, the way the Fed would control that was just by buying and selling assets and sucking reserves into or out of the system. So the Fed wasn't even directly controlling okay. that. What I was what I was getting at though was, when the Fed, let's say, if they want to quote drop interest rates, and so they buy a bunch of assets that pumps reserves into the financial system, like so the yeah. the act of the Fed buying assets creates money electronically and pumps in the system. That pushes down all kinds of interest rates, but it you know the shorter term ones get pushed down more. Okay. Now what's complicated though is since two thousand eight, the Fed did this separate thing where now they literally pay interest to the bankers for leaving their money parked at the fed. Mm-hmm. So That was a new policy introduced in October of 2008. So that's, they now have really strict control over the federal funds rate because at the very least they can set a floor. The fed can just say, if you keep your money with us, we'll pay you you know, 5.25%. Okay. So if you're a bank, you would be stupid to lend out for less than that. Cause you can get a guaranteed return from the fed. So that's, so they have a tighter control doing it that way. So yeah, they're in a sense more literally directly setting the federal funds rate now compared to before, but even before, but they're all kind of market rates. If you get what I'm saying, like yeah. yep. it's not, a, it's not a price control regime. It's just the fed can kind of say, Hey, if we're paying you 5.25%. You would be stupid to lend to somebody else for at four.
0: Right. And so what are the, um, what do you see with the yield curve inverted? Like, what do you see the fed trying to do, it, you know, now, like what What have they declared a policy or are they likely to change what they're doing soon? What, what do you see happening there? They're,
1: they're saying they're going to drop
3: rates next year. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it's what's weird is even though, like I said, I could understand if it was just like, you know, eight Austrians over in the corner, you know, it's like, oh, the world's going to end. And people, like, yeah, yeah, you guys have been saying that since Nixon closed the gold window, get out of here. I would get, you know, I might disagree with them, but I would understand if he was like, yeah, whatever. But the fact that the yield curve has been inverted like this. And like I said, all the things people are pointing to the running, like, like the mainstream financial discourse on Twitter has now changed to, there's not going to be a recession. Look at these fear mongers who a year ago were warning about a recession. Huh? What idiots let's, let's do a post game show to see why they were so wrong as if like we're out of the woods. That's, that's what's weird to me. So in terms of the standard timing, I think, you know, if you looked at when the yield curve inverts and then when the recessions kick in, it's not even due until like late twenty three or you know first half of twenty twenty four. So if we get to be you know fall of twenty twenty four and the economy seems like it's fine, then I could see people saying it looks like the yield curve was wrong this time. But right now, it's not like it's you know be, past due or something. Like it's all mm-hmm. still it sh- it shouldn't even kick in even if it just follows the standard pattern. Um, so the, the answer to your question, Aaron, the the Fed they they officially their staffers as of the July you know press conference Powell said our staffers no longer forecast a recession so the fed is saying we're fine they're they're probably not going to hike more like in other words they're saying we think we've got inflation under control by which they mean consumer price inflation and so we don't think we're going to hike anymore and so michael I, you were saying they're now saying they might even drop it in 2024
1: yeah, they're they're saying they expect to do rate cuts next year, and that's very curious to me because, um, well, it actually ties into a question that I had, which is, um, what is the relationship between the federal funds rate and the and you know the Feds claim that to be attacking inflation because that's always the like that's always their answer as to why they're they're doing rate hikes is is to fight inflation, um, but the thing that really concerns me is that um, consumer prices are still way above two percent um, and. You know, when you go back to the stagflation of the 70s uh, and and Paul Volcker let the interest rate hit like, I think, 21 percent, um, you know, the amount of debt to GDP and just debt overall that we have now compared to the 70s uh, is is night and day. Mm-hmm. And um, it seems to me that with with consumer credit hitting uh, over a trillion dollars recently, that even the, the historically modest interest rates that we have right now, uh, we're being trained to think that they're high because of, like you said, the, the, the super easy policy of the past, like 15, 20 years. Right. Um, but it seems that we can't even sustain these historically modest rates. Um, and they might have to kind of back, backpedal to cut rates. And then that's just going to drive the inflation further. But anyway, go- going back, what, what is that relationship between the, um, the, the federal funds rate and the so-called, you know, war on inflation.
3: Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and this may be news to some of your listeners, because I know we, we've been so trained that every time the government claims, you know, rosy numbers, like you go and look and, and, and they're lying or, you know what I mean? Or they're giving a half truth or something. So, but it, price inflation, you know, measured by the, the standard stuff. And and yes, there's bias in those figures and whatever. We can get into that if you want, but taken at face value, the standard measures, price inflation really has, come down a lot so it's still not in Two. the feds target range yeah but i guess what i'm getting at is um the, the headline numbers that the press reports are typically 12 month. like they look at what the you know what the le- price level was 12 months ago to now and they're reporting that so it's a little bit misleading because actually prices haven't gone up that much in the last five months let's say they've gone up a little bit but not that much the reason that the you know the headline numbers are still so big is because there was a huge surge like in the first seven months going backwards, if you get what I'm saying. And so that made the year over year figures really big. And then now they just keep tacking down because we're kind of treading water for the last five or six months, if you get what I'm saying. So um, also like M2, a measure of the money supply is it's, it's really coming down. It's not just that the rate of increase is slow. Like it's, it's dropping, which is very rare. Like I, like I said, it's if you look at the data set, it that's the only time it's done that going back to world war II. Um, So I think that's the sense in which the Fed is saying, okay, even though the the measurements coming in month after month right now are still technically not exactly in our preferred range, they're coming down. And so why don't we just wait and see and see if they kind of come down, you know, with momentum or whatever, you know, metaphor they want to use. I think that's what they're thinking of. So, yeah. Gotcha.
1: And, and what is, so what I meant with though, is like, what is it about raising the federal funds rate
3: that brings down inflation? Oh, oh okay. So I'll do it like from their point of view and then like yeah. from the Austrians. So from their point of view, which is still kind of a Keynesian, like they're all Keynesians right? of, of different flavors. They just have different nuances and stuff. But the, they all subscribe basically to a theory that, oh, what causes inflation is too much spending. The economy is overheating when too many people are trying to spend. And so the higher interest rates are other things equal that tamps down spending, right? That if interest rates are higher then businesses don't want to borrow and invest as much consumers, you know, the higher interest rates, like you're not going to put something on your credit card or you might save a higher fraction of your income. Cause now you're getting paid more. You know what I mean? Like if the bank CD is 5% rather than 1%, you might save a higher fraction of your income. So for various reasons, the higher interest rates are other things equal spending you might think would be lower, like spending on, consumer goods would be lower and so i think that's that's the mechanism they think the what i think is a better explanation is if the way they're bringing down or sorry if the way they're boosting the interest rate is by the fed selling off its assets or letting them mature and sucking money out of the system which is what what has been happening then you know there's there's fewer dollars out there so that's why other things equal you would expect prices to you know at least price appreciation to slow down yeah, because at least in
1: my experience, that those uh, rates are not being passed on to consumers at the bank. I just opened up a money market the other day, and uh, they they were very happy to tell me that it was a 0.4% uh,
3: interest rate that I'd be getting on that. I'm like, what? Okay, well, there, yeah. I mean, there's – so I can't speak to that, but if you look around like the credit unions and stuff, if you do like a like a saving account or so, – I mean, you, you can get – decent things if you're willing to lock your money up i'll put it that way so yeah maybe like it on a regular checking account but if you're willing to put your money into a thing where they kind of have it for 12 months you actually might be able to get four or five percent depending on what you do
0: yeah whereas I,
3: you, I, whereas you couldn't do that in 2010 like there was just no way
0: so when i became a libertarian it took me a few years to like really get into the you know what central banking was and all that i was still kind of a milton friedman guy for for a while so as someone who's kind of a a new uh ish libertarian brandy like what uh you have questions for bob on this whole central banking thing
2: well one thing i was wondering is just do you think that they're trying to kick the can down the road like to the next see what happens within the next election cycle type of thing or like what policies or what would what would they be able to do to do that so that like, you know, maybe a recession is going to happen, but they're hoping that it doesn't happen right now. And they're kind of like kicking it as far as they can. Is that what's going on?
3: Okay, so I, I don't think so. because okay. I think what happened, I think they may have wanted to do that, but they just they didn't have a choice. Right. So the mm-hmm. thing that was weird and I, you know, ex post, I can sit there and give you guys reasons why this happened. But I didn't see it coming. Like it took me some, so I'm just going to be honest with you. I was I thought there was going to be more serious price inflation in the U.S. in like 2012 through 2015, right? When they were doing all that QE, when the Obama administration was doing all kinds of stuff that you would, would make you think that supply would get limited. You know what I mean? They They were doing very anti-growth policies coupled with all the boatloads of money that Bernanke was pouring in. I thought it was a no-brainer that you were going to see unusually high rises in CPI, and that didn't happen. All right. So I think the Fed was under Bernanke was able to just keep pumping in money and you know, Obama can get reelected and, da, 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 and everything's great. You know, and so for the Biden economy, I I don't I mean, I think nobody in the in the establishment likes Trump. So I think if it were coming up to oh, it looks like it's going to be Trump versus Biden or whoever the Democrats end up picking that. Th- I, I don't think it's implausible to think the central bankers would have wanted the Democrat to win just because Trump's such a wild card that, you know, they don't, they don't trust that guy or whatever. Um, But I think they couldn't, the fed just could not sit there and let inflation rip given. I mean, it got up to like 9%, which has not happened in the U S since, you know, the late seventies, early eighties. Right. So this was really getting out of hand. And I think that they had to do something if for no other reason than for PR, like, like in other words, (laughs) if they let people start thinking that seven, 8% inflation was normal, then everyone builds that into their expectations. And then it's really hard to, to wean that out of the system. And so I think they really didn't have a choice. So I, I think Brandy, you're right. I think they probably would have liked to let the, you know, let the boom run a little bit longer, but I just think they couldn't. And so the right now I, I think that's the, you know, if the crash, you know, if I'm right, there's going to be a recession that kicks in and it's going to start being pretty obvious and painful going into the election. So I think that that is going oh. to be, you know, that's going to, dr- but I don't think that's because they're out to get Biden. I think it's yeah. because they're just, they, they had to do something that if they just sat back that, you know, price inflation would have gotten out of hand.
2: So you don't think there's anything they could do to set that back if they, because depending on what happens, uh, like, I feel like if the economy is really struggling, like you say, next mm-hmm. year, wouldn't that mean that uh, people will probably vote differently, vote towards the people that are actually preaching more, uh, economically sound policies, I should say.
3: Yes. So if things play out the way I'm picturing, they will, unless the Republicans, you know, do something really dumb. I I think that they're going to win the white house or, you know, unless they declare that there's no election because of, you know, a new virus or something. whatever you guys get what I'm yeah. saying, but like under normal voting and stuff. That yeah, I would. I don't see how the Republicans going to lose absent something yeah. crazy going on. Um, and I mean, you're you're right. I think what's going to happen, kind of like in line with what Michael's saying. I mean, and the t- this is the typical pattern, right? I'm not saying anything unusual. Typically, what would happen like this is, you know, so the the yield curve inverts and then it goes back to regular and then the recession kicks in. So why does it go back to regular? Is because the short rates get pulled down. So I think what happens historically, and I see no reason it'd be different this cycle. You know, they they pump in money short rates are low the yield curves upward sloping then things start overheating to use their metaphor they stop pumping in so much money interest rates in the short end shoot up the yield curve inverts and then things start slowing down and then the fed realizes that they start cutting rates they start pumping in more money because uh-oh it looks like we hit the hit the brakes too hard but you still end up going into a recession right so i think like once the it's like turning a an ocean liner or whatever metaphor you want to use that once the economy starts going into a recession, you can't just turn it on a dime. Because the other thing too with all this stuff is, keep in mind, guys. Like back the last um, the 08 crisis, that recession officially started in December of 2007. In other words, if you, like if you go to the government's website and look at the 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 chart or the timing of when they say business cycles, you know, peaked and trough and all that, they say that recession, what we call the Great Recession, started in December of 2007. If you go look at the Fed the minutes of the Federal Reserve meeting of that month they're all fairly optimistic. And Janet Yellen, who was not the chair at the time, she was just like on the board of governors. She was a little bit pessimistic. Like, I think we're in trouble. Like the recession was already begun and they didn't even know it. So just kind of showing like, you know, the economy is a complex system. There's lots of lags in the data. And even if you're in a recession, you don't know it for a few months. Right. So anyway, all that's to say, Brandy, I think what they're going to do is, yes, things start to look like, oh, unemployment starts going up and, you know, business investment and certain leading indicators start turning maybe by Christmas. And, oh, gee, Christmas sales aren't what we expected. Maybe the Fed will start getting nervous and cutting rates. But I think, you know, it'll it'll just be no, a bad recession kicks in because also it's not magic. Right. Like in the Austrian view. It's not just that there's like a a money spigot and they just you know hey it's free money oh you know there's not oh here's money again now go spend like it's that's like a, a sort of simplistic Keynesian view and the Austrians there's a lot of like real investment there's you know physical factories and machinery and eighteen wheelers bringing resources around and you know long term seven year projects so if if you set up a boom and then that starts to crash. You can't just flip everything on a dime just by lowering interest rates. Like a lot of like, even if a business, if they're if they're laying off workers and stuff, even if interest rates come down, they might just say, "No, this this is an unviable project. I gotta wipe my balance sheet up."
2: I'm already seeing layoffs happening. I work in e-commerce, mm-hmm. and a lot of companies are laying people off, or companies are just going out of business already. Like it's already happening. Yep.
1: Big corporations um,
2: too. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I don't. I, Like, it's wild. Like, a lot of people are getting laid off. And so, but you're saying we're not even in the recession yet, right? So it would get significantly worse.
3: (laughs) uh, 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 Right. Yeah. So, I mean, again, in in recession, like, that's it's not like, I mean, it's Mm -hmm. just a a rule of thumb or something, you know, for them to say Mm -hmm. recession or not. But, right. I And also, too, this labor market is weird. I don't know if you guys, beyond just, you know, in, in the media term, like, just anecdotally, I know a lot of teenagers who are trying to get hired all through the period when all the restaurants had up signs saying, Hey, please be kind. We don't have any workers. And I knew industrious, you know, 18 year olds going to try to get work. And they're like, no, we're not hiring. <laughs> so something was, was weird, you know, this mm-hmm. whole time. So I don't, and, it, and even though the, the unemployment rate is like at historically low levels in certain sectors, it's not like everybody has, Oh yeah, my job security is so awesome right now. Like I think everybody's really worried. It just knows this is a weird economy. So I think you're right that the labor market is is screwy, and even though like pro Biden economists are saying about how great everything is, you know I think by November everyone's going to be like, oh yeah, of course this is a rough economy. It's those Republicans' fault because they you know wanted to cut taxes for the wealthier or, or something. They'll come up with some excuse.
1: On on that anecdote, I feel like there's a lot of older people, maybe even retirees, mm-hmm. who are who are getting simplistic jobs. You know what I mean? To to that would normally go to younger people like that that are doing that just
3: to stay afloat. Yeah, I think. Yeah, there's that. And then again, it's I don't want to I know I'm going to sound like an old man or something, but it does seem to me like I could see how if I were hiring like some of the teenagers coming at like, yeah, they can do a lot of stuff online or whatever that I don't know how to do. But in terms of like customer service and being courteous and making change and, you know, like it's it's just not there so i can see why businesses especially if they're uncertain about what's what's our business going to look like six months from now they don't want to hire a bunch of people that you know aren't that great and then they're kind of they locked in. Like, yeah like it's it's easier to not hire somebody and just make do with a short staff or bring in a machine like let's get a kiosk in here or whatever rather than hiring 10 teenagers yeah. and then like oh if they, if they don't work out we'll get rid of them and well no that's that's hard and, to do and i
1: think in young like those types of workers one mm-hmm. because the price inflation 15 dollars an hour even isn't isn't anything anymore and right. and i think there's a huge revolt against corporations and corporate culture in mm-hmm. in the youth to where they just don't even want these jobs um and and they're looking towards the gig economy they're looking towards trading they're looking towards you know ai and, and setting up youtube channels that are automated and right. all this stuff right um and I think that might be part of it too. Um jump jumping back a little bit to like you were saying your your expectation up to this point was more price inflation uh through the 2010s and all of that. Mm. Um, you know, there's kind of two burning questions um that I see for Austrians of like, well, if you're right, why is this and this happening? Which is um the dollar seems to have a hell of a chin on it, um, you know, to be able to take all of this. Um, the best theory that I've seen to explain how we're able to withstand this, uh, the way that we have is
3: the, the dollar milkshake theory. Um, are you familiar with that? I looked into it and I thought that's plausible, but if you, you're going to have to remind me what it is, if you want me to comment. So, on it. But,
1: so yeah. the, the, the general idea, and I, I like bringing this up cause I feel like I have like a, like a hidden gem. <laughs> um,
0: yeah. Every time we talk about this, nobody knows exactly, but it, it yeah. makes sense to me.
3: Um, By the way, it, I'm not. I realize what I said is like non falsifiable. Like to say, oh yes, I'm daily, <laughs> but remind me, you know. But, but I really did look into it at one point, but this is like uh-huh. two years ago. So.
1: There, there was a finance guy named Brent Johnson who came up with it. Mm-hmm. I remember he did a debate with Peter Schiff about it, and um, the the general idea is that yes, we inflate, yes, we abuse the hell out of the dollar, uh, and and yes, we have domestic price inflation, but that when you talk about global trade and global currency trade. Um, that the fact that the dollar is the reserve currency will always buoy it relative to all of the other currencies so that as and all these other banks are abusing their currencies too mm-hmm. and printing their currencies so so that as the value of their dollars goes down this the relative safe haven is is still dollars and treasuries so that that artificially inflates the the velocity in which those th- the, uh tools are bought and therefore at least on the global scene uh propping up the value of the dollar so it's almost like a Highlander effect where the dollar is the last fiat standing, you know, as everybody, everything else goes down around it.
3: Yeah. So again, I, I did look, you know, at the YouTubes and whatever of, of you know, that explanation two years ago. And it, it's not like I was like, oh yes, that's totally right. But I didn't see anything that was obviously wrong with it. You know, it's a plausible theory. I guess the, the thing that I'm comfortable in saying, for example, like you know, you, we, you go to YouTube and Peter Schiff was right. And you saw like an 06 and 07, he was crushing it. People were literally laughing in his face, and he was explaining, No, this is what's going to happen with the housing market, blah, blah, blah. And he was totally right. And yet, you know, his fund didn't do that. You know, he didn't hit it out of the park, which you would have thought. Like, he just forecast everything. And a lot of people thought he was nuts, right? Which is what you need. Like, if you just say, Hey, fireworks sales are going to go up in July, like, yeah, no kidding. Like, you're not going to make money from that. But if you say something that ends up being true that other people thought was ludicrous, you should make a boatload of money and I think partly why he did it is he bet against the dollar, you know, given his views, he thought, Oh no, they're just going to, they printed money, whatever. That's not good. The U S is built on quicksand. Um, but like you say, because it wasn't just, Oh, there's a recession, housing goes down. And then the fed printed all this extra money. It was that there was a financial crisis. And what do people do when there's a crisis? They run to safe assets right now. What do, do investors the world over think is the safest asset to have U S treasuries. So it was this weird thing where even though, yeah, like you say, U.S. policy had been bad. Ironically, even though it maybe triggered a crisis in the financial sector, people ran to U.S. treasuries, and that boosted the, the strength of the dollar. Um, right. So it's a, it's a kind of thing where, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your perspective, but it's it's like yeah, given that how people you know, have that it's, it's sort of thing where there's a lot of room for error, but if the Fed just keeps relying on oh yeah. Everyone's always going to accept U.S. dollars and of story, until the day they don't, and then it's going to be a massive rush for the exits and a big crash, and everyone's going to be like, "Oh yeah, that was obvious. They were, you know, running one and a half trillion dollar deficits like that. What would you think was going to happen?" But right yeah. now, that just seems. I, I even go to conferences where it's packed with, you, you know, uh, like out of the box thinkers, people who are real heterodox. They, you know, they're fans of the Austrian school or at least they're sympathetic. And when I say stuff like, yeah, I don't think the U.S. is going to be the world reserve currency in 20 years, they, they think I'm crazy. And it's, you know, it's, it's not that I think it's going to be the Chinese currency. It's just I'm saying it's going to be more like if the U.S. is only 20 percent, is no longer the superpower. It doesn't mean it's yeah. somebody else that's bigger. It's just more like a, you know, a multiple multipolar world.
1: And this is where I think bricks comes in because essentially the question that I was getting at is, is what is animating this corpse? You know what I mean? If like we're mm-hmm. right about the nature of the dollar and inflation and all that, like what, how how are we still standing? I think that that milkshake theory gives us something, um, to, to perhaps answer that. So then I, I think, cause bricks is basically saying they want to do a, a gold backed currency, right? So that to me signals that the rest of the world isn't going to go over the cliff with us. Uh, right. and right. if there is something and gold is considered, uh, you know, safer, um, then those treasuries are going to start to come back. And when that meets with our printing presses, that's your, that's your flashpoint, I think.
3: Yeah. So, um, guys, I don't know if you're familiar with Jeff Snyder, the Eurodollar University, um, there's a, a couple guys like that that are very you know, friendly to our way of thinking that just think that's nuts. They say, no, the world, the U S dollar is the world reserve currency, these other places, they don't have the prerequisites and, and like a uh, Mish as well. Um, he, he also, even though, again, he's very, you know, anti-Keynesian, he's on our side on a lot of stuff. He also, you know, I've seen him when I was floating the idea that the U S dollar wouldn't be the reserve currency. He came in and was like, no, no, what are you talking? In fairness, they thought I was saying the Chinese currency was going to replace it. That wasn't what I was saying, but that's anyway. And so, right. The the ideas are just saying, what's the competitor? It's the best game in town. So like you're saying, Michael, I think, right. If some group of countries, issued something that was backed up by gold and investors believed in the redemption mechanism, right? Like it would have to be plausible. It couldn't just be them saying, oh, trust us. Like they'd have to show their reserves, you know, maybe put on the blockchain or something, if you really wanted to get fancy with it, um, that I think that thing could displace the dollar. But, but yeah, they would have to do something like that and then really stick to it. So I think what would happen is they would launch something like that. There'd be some tepid interest in it. You know, maybe the countries that really hate the U.S. in terms of foreign policy might go out of their way to subsidize that just to thumb their nose to the U.S. or to get out of the you know, the the fact that if because that's the thing right now is I think a lot of countries forget ideology. They can just see how much leverage the U.S. has just by being able to shut down people's bank accounts, you know, foreign countries that they that they want to spank they don't have to drop bombs on them. They can just say, you're not allowed to use the international banking system or turn off your access to the swift system. And that, that kind of shuts them out of a lot of international trade. So I think that's partly a lot of them are just building up. It'd be like if your electricity kept going out so you got a generator, you know what I mean? Like that sort of a thing. I think that's why a lot of them are realizing we just can't be reliant on the dollar like this because if Washington goes against us for some reason, then we're screwed. So I think that's going to happen, but it'll take a while for that to catch on. I think it'll be like a secondary thing for a lot of, but um, to finish the transit, I think once there's like a major crisis and if they stick to it, if they really don't drop their gold backing and then investors are like, Oh no, these guys are serious. Then I think you might see a pretty big shift, but it would probably take like a public demonstration that this really is a viable alternative. What do you think
2: of the CBDC? Like in that whole thing, do you think that that's, what's your opinions on that?
3: Okay, sure. So, I am very much against a central bank digital currency. Like I think that uh, would just be like um, the culmination of all the centralization and ability to just track people and like talk about control. If if they don't like you, they don't even have to have a trial or anything, right? They don't even have to quote violate your rights. They could just turn off your access to to your money and just Mm -hmm. say, "Oh, we're, we're we're sequestering this account pending a further investigation." You're free to you know go about. We're not arresting you. We're not charging you with a crime, but you just don't have access to this account. And then it's like, oh, great, I can't now buy anything, right? So th- I think you know that's like Orwellian system where they can kind of control people. So that's why I don't I don't like that. I, what's interesting to me is like, why are they doing? it? I think they partly realize the future of finance is digital, and so they're trying to you know get with the program and and, and do that. So um, one thing I will say is for people who know this guy George Gammon. He does the um, rebel capitalist pat He's always got the end the Fed cap on it in his podcasts. Um, his his theory is we're making a mistake if we think that it's going to be Fed coin, like that. It's going to be this newfangled thing that they launch with the blockchain. He's saying, no, I think the Fed is going to gradually like sort of subsume regular people's checking accounts. Yeah. So, that, so that instead of you banking with Bank of America, you bank directly with the Fed. And that is a CBDC whether they call it Fed mm-hmm. coin or just call it U.S. dollars. So and, I don't know whether I, that's going to happen, but that, that is an interesting thing he pointed out.
1: I, I think an indicator of that is what they tried to do with the Trump checks. Um, if you remember, there, there was a proposal with the Trump checks to, um, to have bank accounts directly connected to the Fed so that they could just give you the Trump checks through that and, and spare all the trouble of giving you a check and you cash it.
3: I, I vaguely remember that, but yeah, I would have to go. And you're saying it was it wasn't merely like getting direct, like the way you can get direct deposit with your employer. You're saying it was something even. It more was if connected. my memory
1: serves me right, because I remember uh, AOC, I think, was backing it. Um, it, this would have been bank accounts directly with the Fed, like a Fed wallet. And I get and, what you're
3: saying. So, yeah, like, you keep your own Bank of America, or Wells Fargo, but this is a separate thing to make sure we yeah. can get you your money fast instead of going yeah. Your, and that your sounds like bank. a pilot to me. Yeah yeah okay so th- yeah that actually was not on my radar i'll go look that up to see what happened with that but yeah that if you're right really if that's happens. what they were trying to do totally i would agree that would be like a pilot program just for them to figure out is the public going to do this how you know is it a pain to man because it'd be tough to have 200 million accounts you know that's that's a logistical issue
1: yeah um I want to jump back and then I, we have a couple questions in the chat before we get to secession and stuff like that. But um, j- jumping back to kind of steal uh, this steel man, the skeptic, like you were saying there's people who are super skeptical of, um, you know, the dollar not being the reserve currency and, oh, you know, maybe bricks. And there's people who are super skeptical of that to kind of steel man them. This kind of brings me to my other burning question for us as Austrians, because, you know, we're kind of the perma bears uh, mm-hmm. with the inflation. And then we're also perma bulls on gold. Uh, and, and, and even Bitcoin at this point, a little bit, um, Bitcoin has been pretty, dare I say, stable, uh, at around 30 grand for a while. And, um, but we haven't seen the kind of breakout, uh, in, in gold to correspond with the kind of pain that we're seeing. You know what I mean? And, and I mean, it did, it did go over 2000 and it's been kind of hovering around there, We haven't seen the breakout. You haven't seen the breakout in gold stocks. Uh, and and all of that kind of thing. What do you think it is that's keeping that from taking off?
3: Okay, so so I'm glad you brought this up. So to be clear about my stance is even though I am very pessimistic about like the real economy, I think a bad recession is coming. I think unemployment is going to go up, you know, that sort of thing. I don't think there's you're going to see massive consumer price inflation in six months, right? The, in other words, the, the Fed really has been tightening. The The quantity of money is measured by like M2, really has come down. Not just the rate of growth has slowed, but like the stock has gone down. The Fed's balance sheet is shrinking. Okay, so th- they're going to reverse, like Brandy was saying, I think once thing- the economy gets bad, they're going to reverse course and start pumping in money again. But I'm just saying like, it, it's, not, it's not like as of 2012, when I was looking around being like, where's all the crazy inflation? It's going to hit any minute now. It, right now, I'm not, I'm not thinking that, right? That uh, it did hit already. And then the Fed really did tighten. And now the measurements of inflation, price inflation are coming down. So, to me, that all fits that they pumped in a bunch of money after COVID. Things started going back to normal. People started spending the money. And then you saw prices started to go up and the Fed slammed on the brakes and the prices, you know, they're still going up, but the, the rate that they're increasing the slow. Yeah. Okay. So, having said all that, to me, that's why, you know, I think gold, I wouldn't expect gold right now to be going to the moon, right? Like, I, I think it would have gone up before. And then when it looked like the Fed was really tightening, I could see everyone saying, okay, let's not assume huge future increases and let's wait and see what the fed does so when the fed reverses course that i could see gold going back up if they you know get a sense of what's the fed gonna do here how much money they're gonna pump in so like like brandy was saying like if they if they realize oh my god we don't want trump to win we better just really pump in money way faster than we normally would just to try to make the economy stay afloat until november of you know next year and then i could see you know gold prices zooming up but uh Absent them doing that, I, I don't think gold's gonna take off until they they launch another major round of you know QE or something.
1: Yeah. Do you guys have any questions before I go to a couple uh, audience questions? Uh,
0: no. No. Yeah. Let's. Not, did, did we do that one that uh, Liam? Uh, we brought it had, up, but... but
1: we didn't get into it. It was a good okay. one. I was going to pull that back up
0: actually. Yeah. yeah so Liam. Liam, Liam hosts some of our. Um, uh, uh, one-on-one interview segments here mm-hmm. on uh, uh, Decentralized Revolution. He's He also works with the Defend the Guard stuff, so that's your reminder to get involved with Defend the Guard. But go ahead and um, – yeah, so he just says, I'm cur- curious about Bob's take on the Fed abolishing reserve requirements in 2020. What are the implications of this? Are banks conceivably holding zero reserves? And if not, what was the purpose of that?
3: Okay, so – Um, what bank reserves are in this context, it means um, like literal currency that the banks have in in their vaults or money they have on deposit with the fed. So it's like bank of America has a checking account with the federal reserve and that, so those legally are reserves. Those are like legal tender, right? So a hundred dollar bill in the bank's vault legally is the same thing as them having a hundred dollars on deposit with the fed. So that's what banks reserves are. And so it, historically up until 2020 in the U S banks had minimum reserve requirements. I'm, I'm rounding loosely speaking. It would be like if the bank, if the customers of a bank had $10 million in their checking account balances, then the bank would have to have roughly 10% or like a million dollars in reserves. Again, either cash in their vaults or on deposit with the fed. And that the idea was that you need to have some reserves. So like if, if a bunch of people show up and want to take their money out, they're going to the ATM, they're writing checks the bank has enough in there to, to meet those requests. So obviously if everybody shows up on the same day to take out their money, the bank fails. That's a bank run, they, they don't have 100% reserves, they can't honor everybody's checking accounts, but the idea is keep 10% reserve, you know, just for normal operations to be safe. Um, after 2008, when the QE started and the Fed started just real, you know, buying tons of assets, mortgage-backed securities and treasuries, pumping the system full of reserves, the banks were still worried about lending because you know, the housing boom and bust had just happened the financial crisis all that stuff so banks were very reluctant to make new loans they were just being very careful they raised their standards in terms of who they would lend to at the same time the Fed pumped in all that money so reserves actually went way above even the re- the requirements right so banks were holding more reserves than they legally needed to um, and so for, so for a long time the re- the, the, the law you know saying you need to have a minimum reserves wasn't binding. In other words, the, the banks had, were holding way more than the law said you had to. And then in 2020, when COVID first hit, it was funny. They did it, it so that the Fed had an emergency meeting on a Sunday. It was in March, you know, what right when everything really started getting serious in the U.S. And so the Fed had an emergency meeting on a Sunday. And if you looked at the minutes of that meeting in the I think it was like you had to go to a footnote and then there was another link to something else that spelled it out. Like they really buried it, but they announced, oh, by the way, effective whatever in April or May or something of 2020. We're no longer having reserve requirements. All right. Meaning banks, you just hold whatever you want. Like we're not insisting on a minimum. OK, so, th- so that's the, the backdrop to what Liam's question is. So he's asking, you know, why did they do that? And does that mean right now banks don't have reserves? So I haven't checked the latest numbers, but for a while, it was still the case. They, they got rid of that requirement when nobody needed it anyway, right? In other words, the banks all ha- held way more than that bare minimum. So by them getting rid of the requirement that you have, at least that it didn't change anything right when they changed, when they took that rule away. And I think it's still the case that the banks, you know, have not lent out to the point at which that rule would be binding. Um, so I think, um... I'm not certain. I, my guess is they, they like the banks did want to like take the shackles off and be able to have more flexibility. And so they thought, what better time to do it than right when the world is freaking out about COVID we're getting ready to lock down and we're doing all this stuff. Let's go ahead and do this now. Like in the, in the cacophony of things, this is not going to get noticed. And when it doesn't really affect anything anyway, right? Like let's, let's make this change now. So then down the road, when it does make a difference, right. When banks really are having reserves lower than what used to be the minimum, like we'll say, Oh, this rule has been in place for three years. Now, why are you bringing it up now? You know what I mean? Like it already be like a done deal in, in ancient history. So I think that's the timing as far as um, last thing, I guess I'll say on this is it's even there are other countries with 0% reserves. Okay. So this isn't like the U S is an outlier and, and it's not like other countries. Like, I mean like major, Economies and stuff, right? So it's it's not that only Zimbabwe has done this, and so banks, even if the government's not forcing them to, are going to keep some reserve just because if a customer shows up and says I want to close up my account, give me my eight hundred dollars, they have to have eight hundred dollars in the vault or they look stupid, right? So so banks do keep reserves even if not forced to at gunpoint, but yes, it it is disturbing that the Fed did decide to get rid of this rule in the middle of the COVID crisis, and and I don't think that that's good for anybody except the bankers all right so excuse me um
1: kind of jumping a little bit because you said we wanted to talk about secession and whatnot and uh white pills and whatnot um close to the heart asks and i just started looking into this myself so don't feel bad if you don't know but what are your thoughts on javier malay i might i might not be pronouncing that correctly but uh the
0: is he the it second is. baseman for the Mets? I mean,
3: <laughs> I, I was going to bluff and be like, well, I don't want to hog the spotlight. Why don't you guys go first? I'll try. <laughs> I don't know who that is.
2: Damn Isn't it. that the okay. Argentina?
1: Yes. So apparently uh, I just started looking into this before the show, but apparently there is a self-described and cap mm-hmm. uh, who just won the a primary uh, for president and is now, according to the New York Times, the front runner to be the president of Argentina, and he wants to end their central bank. Um, he's, I mean, I would have to pull up. <laughs> I the, hope he's got a lot of life insurance. I
0: said that earlier, Bob, uh, <laughs> <hang> <laughs> his, oh, yeah. his premiums just went up.
1: <laughs> um, here's, here's one that I thought was funny in a YouTube campaign video. I'm, I'm sorry if I'm butchering this guy's name. Uh, Malaya Malay announced that he would disband a number of ministries that he deems unnecessary, uh, quote, culture ministry out environment out ministry of women and gender diversity out. Public works out science out labor and social security out ministry of education and not, uh, indoctrination out.
3: <laughs> that, that's need the to, actual name.
0: That's what yeah, we, Javier yeah. Malay. Or, no, or my, the, the, the ministry what of whatever oh, and indoctrination. Yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, that's what I said too. I got to, I got to, uh, uh, brave search that one, but, um, that's what he called it. <laughs> Um, and he's got, he's being supported by, I guess, the brother of, uh, Bolsonaro. Um, yeah, like it's, uh, that's kind of a white pill because I, I mean, they have some sort of like multi-party system over there. So I don't think it's a direct one-to-one where like, whereas here, the third parties, um, uh, you know, we're, we have extreme ballot censorship and all this crap, but, um, still, I mean, that's pretty exciting, uh, that, I mean, he actually describes himself as a ANCAP. He's being... Described as a, a, a far right, you know, figure, but he's also a former tantric sex coach. So he's a far right, uh, tantric sex coach, uh, self-describe and calf.
2: <laughs> sounds like a really great dinner party guest. I, you're right? I was going <laughs> to say sounds
3: interesting at the very least. You know, you guys, so really good on the podcast or the yeah. live stream.
1: <laughs> I guess I'll in, inject my my own question since uh, we're all kind of unfamiliar with this guy. Let's hypothetically say that. Uh-huh. Um, a Libertarian Party candidate for president, um, let's hypothetically say that they had more access to a wider audience than any LP candidate ever, perhaps through Joe Rogan and Tim Pool and all of these uh, podcasters. What would ANCAP Bob Murphy say is probably the most important thing that they should be getting out?
0: What should the message be?
3: Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I'm, this is going to sound obvious, but yeah, I think end the Fed and bring the troops home is I think what I, what I would focus on um, before when Ron Paul was running, I thought he should say, end the drug war like to appeal to the youth vote or whatever, but then him saying, and the Fed, they got more fired up about that. So I think yeah. like I was just like, you know, I was like, Oh, whenever I teach about the federal reserve in my class, the students fall asleep. And so I was thinking that was too boring, but I see, you know, Ron Paul showed, no, you can make it cool to say, you know, get rid of the Fed. Um, you can make so it that- populist. Well, I think yeah. it was also
2: due to the, like economic crisis at that time. Right. Like, wasn't that during the recession? Yeah. Uh, Around that time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So I think, I think Mm -hmm. that like really hit home for younger people because they were experiencing it. Yes. And
3: also too, to make it not so much about like when the federal reserve buys assets, but to make it mm -hmm. like, no, there's these powerful people that control the money. Like that's kind of crazy. Like you don't want them controlling the money, do you? So,
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, like if, if a political movement's gonna succeed, you know, long term, it has to have, you know, the assent of a lot of the population. And I think the electorate is kind of fickle on a lot of things, but so I think Bob's right, and you know, of course we're all gonna agree on the in the Fed thing, and I think the reason why is because if you convert somebody on that, if they understand that, like again, I, I was saying earlier
2: Oh,
3: we're all still good. Is it he's frozen?
2: He's, he's frozen. frozen. Okay.
3: You're not frozen.
2: Aaron, you're frozen. Uh-oh.
3: See, <laughs> so you talk about and the Fed and they get to you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I'll give him a chance to, to come back. I wish I knew where, where he was going or else I'd try to finish for him. Um, I'll Probably tell you what, we'll do one more medicine. We'll, we'll do one more audience question while we see if he can come back. Um, how about this one? Uh, what do you think about the price of oil bullish until the bust?
3: Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't, I mean, it depends obviously what happens in Ukraine. You know, if there's some major change over there militarily, then that might have a drastic impact, but yeah, absent that, if those things are the status quo over there, I think, yeah, oil is going to kind of stay where it is until the recession kicks in. Then it's going to drop.
1: When you say status quo, like, uh, you mean it's just a pro-acted a thing? Cause I, I think at some point Russia is going to end this thing and it's just a matter of in my mind anyway, it's a matter of uh what that means. Cause it could mean he could theoretically he could decide that we can't do an east west Ukraine. West Ukraine will be part of NATO. That's a big problem. I have to take all of it. Um
3: so what I meant by status quo right was that you know they the the fight is still there and we keep talking about you know he was justified or not, and everyone wants to yay Zelensky, but nothing like there's no major advances in terms of the front or whatever, but yeah, but yeah, I, I don't, um, I'm not saying that it will stay like that. I'm just saying I can't, my prediction would be based on that, that clearly if Putin has a major breakthrough or if, you know, the Russian troop morale collapses and they all pull back or something that could affect the world price of oil a lot. But absent that, yeah, I think the price is going to stay kind of where it is, and then collapse once the re- global recession kicks in. Gotcha. All right. So you had um, you wrote a, a
1: little booklet about uh, Texas secession, mm-hmm. and and so you you think that they are most likely to kind of start this party if it's going to happen in this country. What is what
3: is that case? Why okay, why Texas? Sure. So the the website just to point of people, it's Texascommonsense.com. And I title it Common Sense, The Case for an Independent Texas. So it's free. I'm not trying to sell it. So go ahead and there. Um, so just mm. to clarify, it's it's not so much that I'm saying Texas will be the first to secede. I am saying I think the strongest case for why secession totally could work and it's not a nut job idea is let's start with the case of Texas. That, that's what I'm saying. Like it could be. In the northwest you know anarchy quote anarchy breaks out up there and there's de facto they break away or whatever you know what i mean so i'm not necessarily predicting texas would be first i'm just saying i can make a very strong case in my mind for texas and i can swat away arguments whereas to make an argument for you know some some landlocked state in the middle of the of the country to succeed there it's kind of harder to think through it whereas texas you know being next to mexico and two about in two oceans and being huge a lot of the standard objections kind of fall away.
1: Yeah, really, really good book on the topic, and it was really digestible, was um, Breaking Away uh, that Ryan McMakin put out not too long ago. Um, that really goes over all of the, like, what people think are hard questions. You know, what happens to mm-hmm. the nukes and all of this kind of stuff? And I just wanted to throw that out there as
3: a recommendation for anyone interested in the topic.
1: Okay, um, great. Yeah, um, I mean, do you want me
3: to handle some of those, the like, obvious ones, or...? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, so like one, I think it first sounds great, like tough, but the more I thought about it was easy. It's stuff like, well, gee, what about Social Security and Medicare? You know, stuff like that. Like Texans have been paying into that. And for that, I would just say, look, it just treat it as if all of a sudden Texas becomes its own country. So if a bunch of Americans decide to move to France, you know, to give up their U.S. citizenship and move to France, you don't lose your Social Security benefits. Like there's procedures in place for – if I change citizenship, how, am I still? It's like if you move to some country that, you know, if you move to Venezuela or North Korea, you don't get it, but that's, you know, because they're on the, the list. It's not because leaving the US, you renounce your right to your social security. So that, whereas Medicare, you wouldn't, because there it's got to be a US facility, right? So it's not the fact that you're a foreign. It's that even a US citizen who goes to France traveling can't use Medicare to pay for medical services in France, right? So, Texans, if they seceded, I, you know, just use the same procedure that they're owed their social security, but yeah, Medicare wouldn't work there. So, you know, you'd have to figure that out. Um, as far as like military, again, I would just say it would be as if, like, when the Iraqi government changed and if they didn't want U.S. troops on their soil and just said to the U.S., okay, thanks. Previous governments wanted you here. We don't. Please leave. And that's what how I think the U.S., you know what I mean? In other words, I, I wouldn't, I don't think the Texas authorities, would be wise to try to argue that, Oh no, these are our air bases and whatever. I think they would just say to the U S government, these are U S government, you know, things, please get off of our sovereign land, you know, and thank you very much. And in that you know, that would be an act of war if they, if they didn't leave.
1: What, what would you say to somebody? Uh, Cause this is like probably the most obvious or common retort or whatever, but, um, what, what would you say to somebody who's like, well, look at the civil war. Do you want them to invade us? You know, like it, what's the practical answer for that? Cause I, I think the kind of more principle based answer is that like, if you're in a relationship with somebody and the only reason you're in it is, is, you know, they'll kill you
0: <laughs> right. if
1: you, if you get out, that's probably a
3: reason to get out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I use the exact same argument in the book to say, you know, if you were talking to some woman and and, she, and you're like, geez, that guy, the boyfriend's a jerk. And she's like, yeah, but if I left, I think he'd kill me. Now maybe she doesn't tell him I'm leaving the next day. Like if she's serious, you know, you know, maybe you gotta be But, Certainly. So I guess I'm with him forever. It's like, no, let me think, how do I get away from him and protect myself? So likewise, if you're telling me, no, I don't think Texas secession is a good idea because I think they would drop nukes on Dallas and Austin. Okay. Fair enough. But if you think that clearly you don't want to be a part of this system anymore, right? Like, let's think through, how do we get out of it? Maybe how do we make it so our kids can be out of it? Right. It's not, well, oh, no. I guess we just stay Americans forever because otherwise they'll melt us like that. That's crazy. Whereas, People say it like like flippantly, like a lot of like National Review yep. types will say it flippantly, like "Okay, well will say that to an F-15." It's like, are you out of your mind? Like, yeah. like that's that's you're holding up the free, you know, self self determination, and you know, the U.S. government stands for freedom around the world. But if Texans want to leave, we we melt them. That's crazy to me.
0: Yeah. Uh, sorry, I got uh, the thunderstorm knocked me out here. So uh, if I'm about to say something interesting, it'll probably bump me out again, but like one of the things as someone who is, you know, a hundred percent pro, uh, secession on down to the individual, one of the sort of the practical things that I see is just in the country today.
2: Oh, oh,
3: he he, he flirted with saying <laughs> something interesting.
1: No, it
2: him off. Aaron, get married. We'll have to try.
0: <laughs> we will have to
1: try again. I, I I'll do. I'll go a little inside baseball and say that <laughs> there are certain uh, people who used to call themselves libertarians and have ceded that linguistic territory to us, and now call themselves liberals. I love that. Awesome. Um, um, but they love to bring up mises. I, I, all right i will aaron you obviously are in some type of emergency you you know. write it out and just
0: hold it up <laughs> i'm so sorry but basically so i think the right um i i could conceive of people on the right being okay with uh certain states seceding but there's an element on the left which are kind of like the jacobins and in, in france in, in the french revolution it's like the people on the left, the hardcore, like they don't want me to be able to, you know, not send my kids to a government school and, and, and have certain beliefs. Like I I think that it would be a much, there would be a lot of conflict over the left, not wanting to live and let live on that. And I don't know if there's an, an answer for that, but I just, I think that that's something that, that would play out. And as someone who lives here in Tennessee, like I could see people in, you know, New York and California be like, what do you mean? You can't leave. I, it's ironic that, you know, 50 years ago liberals would have been, you know, more peaceful and more live and let live on things. But now I think it's like completely the opposite.
3: So I think you're right. And I, And I do think that that, you know, that would be the impetus of certain people not wanting it to happen to say, oh, no, but, you know, they would outlaw abortion or something. We can't tolerate, you know, having this neighbor to the south. And so, yeah, I I guess what I would say in that is we would need to start a campaign. And and I even started doing this myself, like periodically on Twitter. I would just say, hey, hypothetically speaking, suppose 65 in in a referendum with a big turnout, suppose 65 to 30 or something, Texans voted that, yes, we want to secede. Would you be okay, even if you think it was a bad idea, though, would you be willing to let them do that? Or would you think the US government should send in tanks? And just to get people like to hype say do it hypothetically when it doesn't seem real, right? Just to get them on record to say, Well, sure, if they were that stupid to go ahead and renounce the blessings of being part of our grand union, let them go the little ingrates. So then later, if it does happen, then we could have a bunch of people on record who had, you know, kind of flippantly said, Yeah, sure, we're not gonna bomb them. Of course they can go if they want to, idiots. You know, I mean, just to come back, you know, so that I would, in other words, it's not just going to it's not going to happen next Thursday. So this Mm -hmm. would clearly be a long term thing, like there'd be a referendum that would fail, but, you know, have a surprisingly high yes vote. And then they would come back in whatever, four years or two years, whatever. And so I think guys like me would be out there, you know, really just trying to, you know, raise the public awareness or start an interesting conversation or whatever, you know, terms they use to just say, hey. Where you know, if if some if uh some region of France wants to break off from France, should the French government bomb them? And most people would say no and say, Okay, so what happens if it's people you know in Dallas? Like mm-hmm. we're just gonna kill them. And also the other thing, too, like the difference between now and the you know 1861 is I think it would be tricky, like if people are posting on Instagram or wherever, like just you know, their cell phone and showing dead school kids in Houston, mm-hmm. I think that. A lot of Americans would say, yeah, yeah, we can't be doing it. But also that's why the Texans can't be provocative. Like they yeah. can't be shooting cruise missiles you know, into the other 49 states to say, stay away. Cause then that would be an act of, you know what I mean? Like then the U S could plausibly say, Hey, they attacked us. So we're going to bomb them. But if the Texans just said, you know what? Thanks. But no, thanks. We're going to leave. You know, we, we don't need your subsidies anymore. You can take your tank, you know, take your stuff out of here. Stop giving us highway funds. We get it. We're going to just be our own little country. Thanks. And then the U S just started killing a bunch of children. I think that would be tough to sell.
0: And that's what happened in the civil war is that, you know, Lincoln engineered the whole Fort Sumter thing so that the South, you know, the South Carolinians technically shot first. And so from then on it's, Oh, well they, and of course the South was wrong over slavery, but like, Mm -hmm. you know, Lincoln was very shrewd and understanding just what Bob said. It's like, you have to, whoever, goes to the the violence first is going to be at a great moral disadvantage, notwithstanding the larger arguments of, of what's actually at play.
2: Well, and what about the, the Texans that live in Texas that wouldn't want to succeed? Like the Mm -hmm. the refugees, like the left, the people that are on the far, the people that are on the left, Democrats, whatever, that aren't happy in the political, if, if it happens, like, how would that happen though? Would people vote? Like there would be a vote to succeed where everyone and like the majority would if the majority said yes we want to succeed then they'd succeed and then what about the people that weren't for succession mm-hmm. do they do you just like say okay well like either stay or get the fuck out type of thing right <laughs>
3: like- no <it's> a question <laughs> so yeah in the, in the pamph again folks if you go to texascommonsense.com i try to ha- handle a bunch of this so one thing is if, if people are you know like lawful good in terms of their alignment or whatever um strictly speaking, when Texas joined the union in their constitution, that was accepted by the, you know, the federal authorities at the time, There is a clause that says, I don't remember the exact wording, but they reserve the right to say, if the people of Texas, you know, change their mind, they can pull back out. Right. So Mm
2: -hmm. even,
3: you know, legally speaking, according to the letter of the law and everything, they do have the right to, to leave the union. Um, And so what I said, Brandy in the, in the pamphlet was, that it would have to be overwhelming. Like, so a referendum. And I said, it would have to be at least two to one, meaning Mm. that, you know, clearly if if it it was like a 51 to 49, that wouldn't be big enough. Like it's gotta be at least 66% to 33 to show that no, overwhelmingly Texans voted to do this just to make sure there's no doubt about, you know, election, you know, hanky panky or something that clearly the will of the people has been shown. And then I said in the, the new, so suppose they do leave. And then the new, I said, the new Texas regime, would have to totally respect the rights of the people who voted against it. Like, they couldn't have them be second-class citizens or something to punish them, because then that would give a... pre. If for one thing, it's not fair. Like, I, I think it would be unethical to do that. But also, that would give a pretext to Washington to do something, to say, oh, no, you guys are free to be your own country, but you can't abuse the rights of U.S. citizens who are now living in this, you know, foreign land. So just like, if, if U.S. citizens went into Canada, I would think the Canadian government, you know, shouldn't rob them at gunpoint on the highway or something likewise the Texas Republic should treat fairly people who want to maintain their US citizenship and now yeah. are foreigners working in the Republic of Texas okay
0: yeah. so they would still have you know have those and, and they, I, I, I would think that they could even possibly work out some kind of dual citizenship, like all of this right, right. could be ne- negotiated. And that's the thing. So like today, uh, so I've never voted for uh, a president who, you know, the person I voted for has never won, right? So like, theoretically, uh, okay, I don't. And I think the US government is completely illegitimate, but I still live here and you know, so so people live under regimes they don't agree with all the time. Right. So unless, if there wasn't persecution and we're going to take all your stuff and kick you out and, and do an apartheid system, then it would basically be kind of how it is now when people, when their side loses an election. Like there are people here in Tennessee who are like, oh, I'm leaving because, you know, uh, because of Roe versus Wade and abortion is now effectively illegal here. So like things people would basically just deal with it. And the people who really, really believed it and who were, were really upset, they would, they would leave, you know, but a lot of people who just griped about it. I mean, you know, uh, again, as an ANCAP, cap, like, Hey, they have the right to be upset, but like life goes on. You know? I
1: think there's, and I think there's modern day American like corollaries to this. Like if you're a conservative in Philadelphia, you might as well be a refugee. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know yeah, what I mean, like I'm, it, I, live in,
2: I'm, I live in Boston. All right. Yeah. I'm...
1: So, you know. Uh, so what do you do?
2: <laughs> no, you exactly. Know? I mean, I put up with it. Uh, but if it got during COVID, I considered leaving, obviously. I feel like, yeah, it would just depend on how much they actually cared. Right. And like and this or was another people th- could start like little like this is the other thing I was thinking could happen is if I don't know how what percentage of people in Texas are like very against like this idea or like the political structure in texas but like if there is i don't know a small percentage of people that wanted to start like i don't know some like terrorist type of thing like against tech the texas government like i feel like i could see like almost like antifa like something like that arising is this am i (laughs) well
3: well, i do think what and uh i don't remember if it was tim himself or one of his when i was on tim pool's show we talked about this and he Somebody brought up and said, "Okay, let's suppose, Bob, you're right. And it does happen. Well, Texas is pretty heterogeneous. There's like pockets, you know, like Mm -hmm. Austin is pretty progressive for Texas. You know what I mean? And like so it wouldn't just like wouldn't it just be Texas itself? Then would splinter like once the precedent was set that, hey, we can kind of split off and be, you know, part of our own system Mm -hmm. that we prefer. Wouldn't Texas not be cohesive and wouldn't it also So, I mean, I I don't, I can't speak. I mean, maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't. I don't know. Like I get the part of the reason I picked Texas is, you know, there's if, if Texans go to Europe to to visit and somebody over there says, Hey, where are you from? They will say Texas. They don't say the U S you, you know what I mean? Whereas, you know, like, I don't say, Oh, I'm from Massachusetts. That doesn't even occur to me. I I say I'm American or I'm from the U S you know? So I think there is like, like Texans, they, when they learn history in school, they learn about texas state history. Yeah. So I think there is a, a, an identity there that maybe us in other parts of the country don't fully appreciate but but yeah, it well, and so I would say well okay if it does happen great like in other words I'm not I don't think something magical about the the shape of texas and the landmass like if it splits yeah. up into five different areas that's probably better, better from a libertarian <laughs> perspective. Well
0: again. to to brandy's uh thing about oh would that okay texas is independent now would there be like Pro American freedom fighters in uh you know the uh the U.S. uh, government
2: uh, funds in the in the in the
0: upper (laughs) in the upper class suburbs of Austin or or whatever. But like those types of uh, movements are uh, almost everywhere throughout history, especially you know modern history. Those sort of like terrorist type things are a result of violent political persecution. The reason you know the stuff with the PLO and all that happened was because the uh, you know israeli government kicked out palestinian citizens and killed them and murdered them and ethnically cleansed a big part of that uh, region and pushed them to you know pushed them out and some of them stayed and because of that brutal repression not justified i'm a pacifist but like it wasn't justified but that's the cause like if it were negotiated and payments were okay we're going to take your land but we're going to pay you out or whatever it still wouldn't have been right but it would have been highly unlikely to Uh, uh, engender that much of a violent response and so that's again goes back to the key you got to negotiate it It has to be as peaceful as possible and if you do that you're not going to get that backlash i'm surprised the
1: thunderstorm let you say that yeah i know well that
0: just goes to well i won't make a joke about the almighty's (laughs) uh uh, 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 views on palestine but uh, i think i'm right
2: (laughs) Uh, i was just gonna say like i would just imagine that the u.s wouldn't make it easy and just how they would orchestrate something like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, what I think potentially, what they, I they think would, they would
3: do is like the CIA or FBI or somebody would would fund some like some crazy guy, like right wing racist, mm-hmm. you know, I hate the Jews, blah blah, blah <laughs> who's pro Texas secession to go. A Lisa's blow- caucus member, yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's yeah. got a whole roster to choose from, right? To go blow up, <laughs> you know, some. Some federal facility and kill a bunch of kids that were in daycare or something, you know what I mean? And then say, Oh, look at these Texas separatists, Mm -hmm. they're a bunch of nuts, you know what I mean? To try to get the rest of the country to be like, Oh my god, we can't let these people split off because then they're going to just start arming up. And you know, without federal oversight, you know, these crazy right wing kooks down there are just going to start stockpiling, you know, whatever stinger missiles and suitcase nukes, and we can't have that off off our so. So, I think that's the way they would build up public support to start dropping bombs is to say, you know, these people are nut jobs and have a lot of false flags and things like that. Yeah. Like that, create
2: psyops, like yes. for people. Yeah. That, that's what I, some, something along those lines. And, and then if they did succeed, I do think that eventually they would probably, you know, fund almost like inner terrorist groups to like fight against it. I would, I can't imagine the U S letting it go easily. Whether or not they say, like, they're like, okay, yeah, do it. But, like, I just can't imagine that it being an easy thing to happen.
0: I I don't think it'd be easy yet, and I'll I'll shut up after this, but, like, if you read uh, uh, Michael Malice's book, The White Pill, which is talking about the the fall of the Iron Curtain, and as someone who was, like, you know, alive and watching the news when all that happened, like, if you would have told me in 1987 that, you know, the Soviet Empire was going to, you know, go away and, and we, you know, within a few years, Germany would be reunited and all these countries would be, you know, much more free. It would, it's, it's, would have been absolutely ludicrous, but like certain things like that. And you're right, Brandy, it, I think right now it's highly unlikely, but it's highly unlikely until it's not. And then once something happens that, that flips that over, then people adapt to this new thing in the air and it gets worked out. So
1: we can we can wrap on this because this is a concept that i've thought of for a while um and it's a different form of secession that i would argue might be a little bit more feasible um because it plays off of i don't know if the tension right now in mass maybe in texas but in mass i don't know if the tension is people being against the concept of the federal government or being against the federal government like they might be against you know, this Republican, mass that, Democrat that the federal
2: government. So, <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, or, but what I do think is definitely real is the, the, the culture clash of the rural and urban divide, uh, in, in pretty much every state. Mm-hmm. Um, so what would, and, and I don't know the logistics. I, I suspect that you would need like a state constitutional convention or something like that to, to do this, but imagine, so I'll use my state. Um, For all intents and purposes, Pennsylvania did not have an uh, an election in the last presidential election. Pittsburgh and Philadelphia had elections, you know, and and they are super red, like super dense, super red areas within uh, Pennsylvania. And the rest of it is largely red. Um, But these super blue areas um, um, dominated the rest of the states. So what if you had like a, a, a constitutional convention of the state to basically come together and say, you know what, Philly? Love you. Don't really love sharing a government with you though. So we're going to push you out. You're going to be the free Republic of Philadelphia. We'll have free trade and open borders with you, but we're, we're not trying to be dominated by you anymore. Um, and you, I, I think you could probably play off that urban rural divide. I don't know if that's like more, I kind of hold this to be a little bit more
3: feasible, like in real, in actuality. Well, I I know that in California, for example, there's a pretty strong movement, you know, to to split California, like you're saying, like Northern California is a lot more conservative than and, and to do things like that. So, yeah, if you're saying short of seceding from the overall United States, but just having within each state sections breaking off to me, yeah, that that's not going to cause people to freak out as much. And so maybe that would be maybe that's going to happen first. And then people can look at that and say, "Oh, the world didn't end, so why couldn't a whole state just break off?"
1: Right, right, exactly. All right, well, I think we can wrap on that. Um, appreciate your time, Bob. Where can people find your work?
3: Um, just if people go to bobmurphyshow.com, dot com. That's my podcast, and you can see links to everything else I got going on. So bobmurphyshow.com dot com.
1: Bob's a hilarious Twitter follow. Oh yeah, that's so, yeah, um, yeah.
3: Bob Murphy Econ is my handle on Twitter.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, awesome. I, I I think it's it's strange that someone as well adjusted as you spends that much time on Twitter because every time I get on there, it just <laughs> it just it's I say this all the time, but it just depresses me, angers I me. Thought, yeah. And so it's somebody like you, Bob, that that is able to to mix it up and and still be the great guy you are, and and to like you know really uh, cut the legs out from people from time to time. It's it's pretty impressive.
3: Well, thank you. Maybe I'm not as well-adjusted as you think. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. All right. Well, that that
1: wraps. Thank you. That wraps uh, episode 123 of the Decentralized Revolution podcast. Again, go to defendtheguard.us slash phone bank and help them out. Let's get some some troops home. Let's uh, fight back against the military-industrial complex and let's keep going with the Decentralized Revolution. We'll see you guys next week with some of our winning candidates, mayors, city councilors, and let, let you know what they're doing in their communities and that this whole theory, this whole thing is not theory. It's actual, actuality and it's budding. See you guys next week.